This is Respecting Health. Hi, I'm Rod Pahovsky. Well, we're going to start out talking about kind of a health care thing, but we're going to move into a broader perspective on things that affect our health. And I just wanted to provide a little bit of background here. So in the world of healthcare and the people who provide care and do the policy around healthcare, a lot more attention is being paid over the past few years to what's called social determinants of health. And the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services defines social determinants as the conditions in the environments where people are born, live, work, play, worship, and age that affect a wide range of health, functioning, and quality of life outcomes and risks. And according to its Healthy People 2030 initiative, they're grouped into five domains. So you have economic stability, education access and quality, healthcare access and quality, neighborhood and built environment, and social and community context. And for those of us who don't work in healthcare and just live in a neighborhood, you know, you know what these things really are. You live them and you experience the limitations and the effects that these have on your life every day. And more typically, we don't use these terms uh, to talk about them. We talk about things like uh, housing security, access to transportation, the level of violence or racism uh, in a neighborhood, the access to and the quality of education, uh, food security, literacy, uh, and even environmental conditions such as pollution. And now it's pretty easy to see how each of these can have an impact on human health. Like I said, we live this kind of stuff every day. And it's really good to see the healthcare community acknowledging the effect of these non-medical factors on our lives and health. Healthcare isn't really just about treating the symptoms, but about getting at the disease. So addressing social determinants is an acknowledgement that our health and well-being includes a much broader palette of issues. And again, I think this is a really good thing. And it's just part of the Healthy People 2030 initiative, which looks at, in addition to that, they look at wider core developmental and research objectives. And there's a website there that I'll um, provide the link to if you want to look at more of that. But I also can't help but wonder, how is it that as a society, we create these conditions and these environments that end up being detrimental to health and then we accept their existence as somehow out of our control or it's just the way things are and it'll never improve. Well, I've always been of the opinion that there's way more to this story. Then this spring, a group of researchers published a series of papers in The Lancet that addressed some of these questions. What they looked at were the commercial determinants of health and how, according to their articles, and this is their words, and how a shift towards market fundamentalism and increasingly powerful transnational corporations has created a pathological system in which commercial actors are increasingly enabled to cause harm and externalize the costs of doing so. Well, what exactly are commercial determinants of health? The Lancet series defines it as the systems, the practices, and the pathways through which commercial actors drive health and equity. And this can manifest, manifest itself through political and marketing and employment and scientific and other practices. 
Well, that sure sounded interesting to me. And after reading the papers, I reached out to the project lead, Rob Moody, professor of public health in the School of Population and Global Health at Australia's University of Melbourne. I spoke to Professor Moody about commercial determinants of health, the project, and what is being done to help effect change. That conversation is coming up in just a moment. Rob Moody is Professor of Public Health, University of Melbourne, and he also serves as Chair of the Health Futures Australia Organization. And uh, relative to our conversation today, he led the series, a Lancet series, on commercial determinants of health. And that's what we're here to talk about is commercial determinants of health. Professor Moody, thank you for joining us. Welcome. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, Rod. So I I think what I want to start with is we hear a lot about social determinants of health. That seems to be a pretty popular term that uh, has gained in use in the last several years. How would you compare that to commercial determinants of health, and how would you define commercial determinants of health? Thanks. I mean, the rainbow model of the social determinants of health, um, you know, came in 1991, presented by Dahlgren and, and Whitehead. I mean, it was really widely used, very useful in people trying to understand, in a sense, the causes of the causes. You know, what was what lies behind our health, um, what lies behind our, our illness, um, and looking at all those conditions that, you know, that I guess lie behind how we're born, grow, work, live, uh, how we age. Um, and what what are the forces and systems that actually shape uh, the conditions of, of our lives? And that's 1991. The world's changed a lot since 1991. Um, and that's why one of the reasons why we really started to focus on one of the big parts of the social determinants of health are the commercial determinants of health. Um, there are a number of reasons why we've done that, and I could just take you through those if you like. That would be great. Thank you. One is, you know, there's escalating evidence of the increasing harm um, to people and the planet from an increasingly market-driven world. Um, There's really quite rapid um, growth in the size, power and influence of corporations, particularly when we compare them to nation-states, and I'll come back to that a a bit later, Rod, also, we've seen you know, the great difficulty so many governments have in, in managing the size and the power and influence of these corporations. Um, we also have, a, I guess, a sort of structural issue amongst the researchers is that a lot of this work to date has been done in silos. You know, people are concentrated on alcohol or tobacco or junk food or energy, uh, and we really need to bring uh, a lot of those researchers and help us to align, I guess, across um, those industries and, and sectors because, as we've found out, the uh, many of the practices and approaches um, within this structure of commercial determinants of health are, are very, very similar. Um, also, one of the interesting things and something I've been really interested in for a very long time is the notion of the private sector and how we talk about it often as a, a homogenous idea and notion But when we look into it, it's incredibly diverse and it's shifting and there are many grey zones in it. And we thought it was really important that we start to really disaggregate that whole notion and really start to understand 
what the commercial forces are, who the commercial actors are, how do they operate, how often many of them are within the public sector or within the not-for-profit sector as well. But uh, uh, so you have this sort of blurring, I guess, of, of identities that we need to understand so that we can work out you know, who should work with whom. And lastly, there's obviously a huge need for real alternatives, for much higher business standards, for stronger governments, stronger civil society responses, uh, and, and much healthier practices and products that actually do provide profit. So getting this balancing of profits and planet and people is really important. Yeah, one of the things that I found real noteworthy in the editorial that accompanied um, the, this article series is they made a point that this isn't really anti-business, it's pro-health, and uh, they're trying to... Uh, get people to think exactly. more about health from day one when you're when you're constructing a process or you're creating some kind of a policy. Yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, we've been talking with a number of different groups and come back to this perhaps a little, a little bit later, one called Share Action, which works very, at a very high level with investors uh, across the globe. And they're increasingly finding out that these longer-term investors are obviously really interested in the health of their um uh, their partners, and that um, you know, making sure that people survive well and survive and thrive is actually important for for good investment in the long run. And we'll come back to that in a minute. But that notion of sort of aligning a healthy planet, healthy people, uh, and also relatively healthy profits, you know, is, is certainly is certainly possible. And that's why. Um, Business needs to change. We need to, in a sense, the researchers need to, to understand much more. We need to get much better alignment and much better understanding. And we need to introduce new people into this game. It's not a not just for researchers. It's not just for academics. Um, it's now, you know, we have a real need for digital analysts, for business analysts, for political economists, political scientists, people that really understand uh, a larger world, I guess, not just the health world. That's a really important point. Uh, Point too. I think uh, what you've already articulated to some degree here is that we have a tendency to look at health issues as being a health care issue or, you know, something to do with the health sector of our society. And there's so many other factors that affect our health. And that's what this is really trying to start to model, correct? Absolutely. Um, I mean, first of all, we, you know, saying before that it's not anti-business, it's pro-health. I mean, the point, important point there is that we actually really do acknowledge that many businesses play an incredibly important role in society. I mean, one of the best things you can do for someone's health is make sure they're employed in a in a safe and purposeful and meaningful job. Um, so that, I mean, that's incredibly important. Um, and, you know, at the same time, we have to recognise that there are real practices and products um, of some of the corporations that are really making people and the environment sick. Um, and you know, we're now seeing that really just four um, products, if you like, be it alcohol, tobacco, um, uh, harmful energy and, uh, and uh, unhealthy food cause at least a third of preventable deaths per year globally. So you know, there's a lot that we can do to make sure that people live longer, they live, the, the planet's much healthier, and that also business can still make a profit. That's the whole point, I guess, is that it's making sure that 
we get this combination. We're not just uh, thinking about profit as a way of sustaining um, economic activity. We're really thinking about the pro- the planet and people as well. It's not the only metric. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's why it's really interesting starting to see the notion of well-being budgets being brought in by different governments across the globe where they're thinking this is much more than just GDP per capita. This is really about um, how the society works and how evenly, I guess, resources are spread across the community. I mean, one of the things that we're seeing is an increasingly unequal world and this is where we're seeing the commercial determinants actually really impact on on equity and on inequity as well. Could you take us backwards just a little bit and um, share how you really got really involved in this and very interested in this over the course of your career. I think you, you know, as you said, things aren't the same as they were in 91. So No, I mean, I I started working in refugee health, in indigenous uh, health care as a, as a doctor, then moved into public health at the time of HIV when uh, HIV was really starting in Australia and then starting globally. And, and I got very involved in working with the global program on AIDS at WHO and and with UNAIDS, the joint UN program on AIDS. After I'd worked in that area for about 15 years, and I was fundamentally really interested in that why, because of, it was so related to how communities work um, and how people live their lives. Uh, and that's what fascinated me about what we could do to prevent HIV and how we could um, improve treatments as well. Then I actually came back to Australia and started working with the Health Promotion Foundation, which is it's called Vic Health. Um, it's a, really the first organization in the world that used a tax on tobacco to buy a tobacco sponsorship in the sports and the arts here. So you're replacing really harmful um, sponsorship with really healthy sponsorship. It's a great idea. And um, it was within that I, within that sort of work that I really started to understand the role of the tobacco industry and how nasty big tobacco is. Um, how completely amoral they are, um, and then started to understand, well, there are obviously other other industries like alcohol and at that stage particularly um, ultra-processed foods or what we'd otherwise, otherwise call junk food or junk drinks uh, and their impact on, um, on our health. And watching that more and more closely, I guess, and starting to understand their practices, let alone their products, really, really got me very interested in it. And um, about 10 years ago, we put together an article called Profits and Pandemics, which is really one of the, I guess, stories that really started to understand what's going on, not only in high-income countries, but also in low-income countries. I've been particularly interested in, in now watching where these very large corporations go, and they they are more than transnational. They're all almost supranational. If you take either Coca-Cola or Nestle, then there's a two classic uh, corporations that that span the globe but work at a very hyper-local level as well. I mean, I was, I've been working in, in um, very different parts of, of Africa. I remember in one particular area in eastern Sudan, actually, uh, near the Ethiopian uh, Eritrean border, that, I mean, it's no matter where you went, you could still get a cigarette and you could still get um, a Coke or Pepsi. I mean, it was, it, their distribution uh, channels are, are incredible. Uh, and in a sense, that's 
something we actually tried to learn <laughs> learn about and adapt it to being able to provide condoms, for example. Um, we weren't quite as successful as uh, as they were, but um, you know, when you watch where profits are being now made now, then it's really in low income countries and low middle income countries where there's a huge market expansion of pretty unhealthy products. So, how did this Lancet series come to be? Well, I really need to acknowledge the work of Sonia Lowe, who's a uh, commissioning editor at The Lancet, and Sandra DeMeo, who's the current CEO of Vic Health. Um, and we had a meeting about three, almost four years ago to plan this series uh, and then built out a, a idea of having three different papers, bringing in people like Anna Gilmore from Bath, who really is a, a wonderful, wonderful researcher and thinker has done an enormous amount of work in tobacco, um, really understanding how they work and now understands uh, the industries. And she she led the team that really put together the the new definition uh, or consensus definition and a conceptual model um, and also Sharon Friel from uh, Australian National University. But, you know, people like Nick Freudenberg, Sandra Galea, who've been working in this area, um, and to acknowledge the work of people like uh, Alona Kickbush, who sort of originally, uh, I guess, put the notion of commercial determinants of health uh, out there as a, a way of really trying to understand what's going on and how we might do something about them. Has the has the series been received well? Uh, have you gotten feedback yet? Yeah, well, I mean, it was interesting. Our webinar when we started this about a month ago um, with The Lancet uh, is the most popular uh, webinar they've ever had. So uh, certainly, you know, 3,000 people signed up for it uh, across 120 plus countries. So this shows a lot of interest where currently now there's, um, it's being um, explored and released in, in a, a number of different places, uh, not the least of which is the World Conference on Public Health uh, in Rome at the very moment. And it's great to see the lead authors like Anna and, and Janet and Lacey Nichols and Sharon actually leading this discussion uh, at a global level. We have much more to do though, Rod, and that's why I'm really pleased to talk to you uh, in, in making sure this goes well beyond the health sector. Uh, and that's why we need to be talking with investment houses, with entrepreneurial philanthropists who really understand this world um, as well as political economists and political scientists uh, and and business leaders that, um, you know, many of whom really do get it. I mean, a, a, an example close to home that, that you may know about is tobacco-free portfolios, which was started by a, a um, Melbourne-based um, oncologist who, Bronwyn King, who said, asked her financial advisor, well, where's our superannuation funds being invested? And he said, oh, well, they, some of them go into tobacco companies. She said, what do you mean? What do you mean? I'm, I'm an oncologist. I'm treating people with lung cancer and you're putting my funds into the tobacco companies. That's outrageous. So in response, she starts up this organisation that is brilliant now. I mean, it now has, I think, something like $12 trillion of funds under management pledging to say we will not invest in tobacco. And huge organisations, whether it's AXA or uh, HSBC or Paribas or these other major global institutions who are now saying, no, we will not fund um, uh, big, big tobacco. And that, I think, is having an impact. That has is only successful because of the 50 years of, of work of um, 
uh, of anti-tobacco or tobacco control campaigners uh, and their work. But um, this things can change and uh, some really, really wonderful or examples, as I was mentioning before, about groups like Share Action in the UK who are working with groups in the US to start to really inform investors um, and let them know, you know where, where there are some really healthy places to invest that are also profitable. Yeah, that's really cool. Uh, again, this isn't all, you know, not every organization or commercial entity is, you know, inherently evil, right? So Not can, at all. I mean, that's good... why, I mean, again, another example is a, um, a group that's just started called the Transition Accelerator, which is really about philanthropy plus investment plus uh, climate change non-government organisations um, that are working together to make sure that the rules of the game start to change so that um, they don't deny at all the notion that businesses need to make a profit because that's their their uh, um, avenue to sustainability, but also bringing them to a much higher standard, um, and a much higher moral standard so that you know, that they are really working for a healthy planet rather than against it. And we've had huge problems here in Australia, probably uh, the same in the US, more so than in Europe, but sitting on a so much brown coal uh, and so much oil and gas has meant that um, there's a real resistance, or it has been until a, a recent change in government, a real, re- real resistance to uh, responding to the climate change crisis. Can we talk a little bit about the model, just at a at a high level? Um, sure. It's it's really uh, impressively inclusive of a lot of different things that I don't think uh, we're aware of all the time that have some kind of an effect or impact on health. And uh, you know, you can name just about any sector, and it's on here. Um, but it's also structured in such a way to show how. And and I will put a link um, on my website to the papers so people can download those and look at this model. Uh, it just how everything is so codependent almost on each other, but we don't really think about that. We think about, uh, I'm, I'm going to say, generally speaking, we think that health yeah. is its own separate yeah. microcosm in the universe, yeah. uh, as opposed to all these other industries and ways of, uh, you know, commercializing lives and, and uh, business entities. Uh, but but there really is are some deep relationships here, and um, could you just kind of give us a real high level? Sure, I'll I'll, I'll try. I'll try. Really. Sure. Um, I mean, one of the things we really tried to do, and and again, Anna Gilmore and her team led this, um, was a consensus definition. And of course, when you get thirty five academics in a room, um, that's not easy. But um, no, <laughs> they came up with a, I think a really good one, which is the systems. So systems practices and pathways through which commercial actors drive health and equity. So in a sense, it's both an impact on health and and how that health is distributed in the notion of equity, but a real focus on on the large systems, practices um, and, and pathways. And if you just start with the practices, then um, we're really looking at the political practices an example of this is you know how the alcohol industries lobbied to to block any warning labels on their products. Their marketing practices, um, again here and and across the globe, the vaping industry's use, which is the tobacco industry, uh, use of flavors um, and really colourful 
imagery to appeal to youth, an enormous amount of saturation advertising to to children around junk food, um, particularly related to, to, to sport. Um, there are scientific practices that they use where they really undermine um, real science. I mean, an example of this is either the Institute of Life Sciences, um, which was started by a former Coke vice president, um, which is almost a parallel form of, of um, pseudoscience um, along and basically pointing to the fact that, well, you know, diet isn't important for obesity, lack of physical activity is. Uh, and so pushing people off into, into looking at um, uh, other, other areas. Also, obviously, the, the fossil fuel industry, you know, the funding of its research to really confuse evidence on, on climate change, another example. Other examples of financial uh, practices, employment practices, supply chain practices, reputation. So these are all sort of brought in together um, and they work with each other um, in terms of the power on the, of these corporations utilising these practices can really put the world in, in a pretty major imbalance where the commercial actors use their wealth and their power to really shape regulations um, and policies in their own particular interests. And I have some really interesting examples just from here, Rod, I don't, they might be of interest, but I mean, it's, I'm sure this, is, this happens globally. Um, but we, we, several years ago, we ran the, I chaired the National Preventative Health Task Force, which was to look at alcohol, tobacco, and, uh, and obesity. And it was interesting how the, we didn't have to talk with the tobacco industry because they were persona non grata already, but alcohol and junk food were still around the table. And they used their power to basically uh, limit any effective public health interventions and have done so after the uh, over the last 10 years, which just makes me so angry. Uh, in a sense, the way that they've utilised their political power, donate public donation, uh, political donations, um, you know, an immense amount of lobbying um, and influence uh, and threatening using their media partners to threaten governments as well. So uh, even a country like Australia, then uh, they have a very powerful impact on on stopping effective public health uh, interventions. It, it sounds messy. It sounds complex, <laughs> right? Very, very complex. So that kind of brings me to this question of causation versus correlation and uh, yeah. a, a lot of organizations don't, and, and people in general, don't want to move uh, or, or change any of their activities unless there's yeah. definitive proof. Uh, you know, you can look at climate change and one of the top or, yeah. or, you know, arguments is, well, you can't prove that humans are responsible. So, you know, make me. Um, any, any thoughts on that, that obfuscation that, that you kind yeah, of Yeah, I mean, I, again, there? that's... Uh... Um, when people are protecting profits or, uh, and protecting power and influence, then they will do anything. Um, they will lie. <laughs> they will uh, produce completely false um, narratives. Um, I mean, the classic one, you know, one is obviously anthropogenic um, cause of, of climate change and the fact that, um, you know, Naomi Oreskes' work saying that, you know, 95 plus percent of, of, of climate change scientists are in absolute agreement and you'll always get people who are against it. I mean, we've seen this in, in her book, um, The Merchants of Doubt, how you can 
an industry can pick up in particular, they'll find uh, either unhappy researchers or unhappy people that, that ideologically um, really um, refute the notion of, of government. And, and one of the huge issues that we've had to deal with over the last 30 years is the huge impact of the whole notion of neoliberalism, which is, in a sense, unfettered capitalism, um, small government, um, and you get this pretty um, major imbalance in power. Um, and that's, again, what um, um, Anna Gilmore and uh, her team have, have, I think, shown really well about this real cycle uh, of imbalance so that they start off using wealth and power to, to shape the regulations of policies in their own interests, um, then these favourable policies absolutely you know, stimulate increased sales and increased consumption. And we're seeing that particularly with um, ultra-processed foods uh, and ultra-processed drinks. Um, and that then um, has a pretty major uh, cost burden. Um, and these costs are externalised. And this is one of the big issues, I think, is who's paying for the for the cause of the harm produced by the production and consumption and actually disposal um, of, of their products um, and who's actually paying. And that's obviously states and, and individuals are paying for them. Um, and that means that there's less money available for other medicines, for healthcare, for food, for housing, um, and at least health systems unable to cope. Meanwhile, commercial actors enjoy excess profits they fuel this growing power imbalance between commercial actors and governments. Um, they argue for small government. And then, and then they say government can't deliver on this. Why? Because, well, government's got no tax revenue to actually use because they've been argued against it. I mean, one of the fascinating shifts that I've seen over the last few years, Rod, is the increase in the power and size of, of large corporations. And of the world's 100 largest economies, um, about 15 years ago, 50 were corporations uh, and 50 were, were nation states. This is now about 75 of the world's largest economies are corporations. Only 25 are, uh, are nation states. I mean, Walmart in the US uh, or globally makes more money than Spain or Australia or Netherlands. I mean, that power imbalance and I've done an enormous, you know, I've done a lot of work in, in, in Malawi, which is a one of the, you know, um least economically um wealthy countries. I mean, it has no capacity to resist the power of corporations that literally market, you know, they want to march into Malawi, well they just walk in um because of the power that they hold. So you're getting this huge imbalance and, and it's really time to call this out. Um and we're you know we're we're calling out this imbalance. Um, and we're calling for responses of governments and responses of business. Why? Because it's in, in absolutely needed for human health and for planetary health as well. I was going to ask you too about um, something you just brought up with low, middle, and high-income countries and whether they're at any particular disadvantage. And your example of Malawi just kind of um, showed an example right there about how they really are defenseless against this kind of thing. Uh, is there any advantage that any low, middle, or uh, high-income country has in, in moving this in another direction? 
I mean, it's interesting how you know some countries like Ghana have been able to to manage some policies around food, for example, around trans fats, um, and you know it, it will depend a lot, I think, on on um, supporting working with um, bureaucrats and policymakers and regulators in uh, in many different countries, and that's what groups like the NCDL uh, Alliance. Um, has been very good at um, just as we saw and I worked in this sort of area with HIV we saw this huge mobilization of of um, support um, and collaborative work from high income countries with with lower and middle in- income countries we're yet to see that uh, really effectively in uh, in the whole area of non-communicable diseases and the commercial determinants of health but I think it's coming. I mean, I really take my hat off to governments like the Norwegian government, which is one of the first to really start to invest um, in their foreign aid in work on these issues. Um, other really interesting groups, for example, have been Bloomberg Philanthropies, who put a lot of money into uh, support, into um, supporting governments in Mexico, in Colombia, in South Africa, to resist the power and the domination of some of these corporations. I mean, South Africa is really... I mean, they now have a tax on soda. They've, um, they've really resisted the huge push um, against the government for doing this, but that's been really helped by a notion of sort of global solidarity. We need much more of that across the globe now, just as we've had with things like HIV. So what can people who aren't uh, working in the government or leading corporations do? Well, um, this is the role, I guess, of, of civil society and the role of, um, in particular, non, non-government groups. I mean, they can have their voice. Um, they can work with a whole group of, of other, as we've seen with the climate, uh, sort of climate change alliances, these are the similar sorts of alliances. In fact, we can learn a lot from, from, uh, uh, from those groups as well in terms of how do they actually really start to influence government policy, how they start to influence local policy, because it may be quite local uh, in their area. Um, it may be at a provincial level, it may be at a national level, or even at, a, at an international level. But there's an enormous amount that that we can do as, as individuals, but it's best to be doing it within a group. Um, and you know whether that's working in, as I say, a, a civil society organisation, um, who's then really starting to get to know um, and work with um, policy leaders and with regulators because we can learn from any industries there because that's what they've been doing for years. You know, how do we start to lobby and work in a much more effective way so that we're really starting to bring issues around health and issues around equity to their attention rather than this sort of assumption that it's just normal to have a huge amount of um, uh, advertising to our children uh, in a way that really is very, very unhealthy. Is there anything you'd like to add? Again, just to say that, you know, as I say, we're we're really calling for much better um, responses and and sort of greater control, I guess, of of governments being able to to manage really harmful... um, um, products and and uh, and systems that that and, and activities that uh, practices that, that, that 
corporate half of corporations are using so that they're really starting to understand um that you know there there's something they can do about this and they can start to talk to other governments to talk to non-government organizations as well but also i think the point is we start to need to use power versus power so this is where groups like share action um like tobacco free portfolios are really getting to the investor level. Uh, they have an impact on corporations, so they also have an impact on, on the retailers. They can work at these different levels. Why? Because many of these people really do understand that they, we, we need a sustainable planet. We need, a, um, we need much better health if, we're, if their investments are going to work um, in, the, in the longer term. So this is where we start to align. And it's not a case of just opposing. So we're really starting to listen and talk to each other and understand each other. We'll have to oppose where that's appropriate, but also I think really bring a lot of business people and and policy leaders and regulators together, so that we're um, heading for a much healthier and a much healthier planet. Rob Moody is professor of public health at the University of Melbourne. He also serves as the chair of Health Futures Australia. And most recently, and our topic of discussion today, led the Lancet series on commercial determinants of health. Professor Moody, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Rod. I really enjoyed the conversation. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, what did you learn? I, um, I, I it, this just reinforced commercial de- determinants are really a huge and complex issue with global implications. And um, 75 of the top 100 economies on the planet are actually corporations, not nation states. And as discussed, um, you know, I want to reinforce, too, commercial actors aren't all evil. There's a lot of good being done by commercial interests. It does seem at first, though, that uh, changing every commercial actor's behavior is overwhelming and impossibly naive. But as we heard from Rob Moody, organic change is already happening through thoughtful, human, and health-based investments, realigned priorities, and changing values that seek balance among people, the planet, and profits. But how do we continue the momentum? Recall my earlier conversation with Don Berwick about greed, and recall, too, the earlier episode with Carlos Torelli in which he spoke, as did uh, Dr. Moody in this conversation, of the power and the influence dynamic and how it's related to cultural values. Is there a way that we can appeal to the better nature of the people who organize and run companies and other types of organizations? Can we achieve a higher moral standard? And what, as Dr. Moody pointed out, is the role of civil society in getting there? In an upcoming episode, I will be talking to Anna Gilmore, the lead author of one of the papers in the Lancet series. We will take a deeper look at the issue and the framework she and the group developed around commercial determinants, and I'm really looking forward to that conversation. 
From my perspective, individual and societal values have left their fingerprints all over the determinants of health question. Values shape our choices in everything, from distribution of resources to what levels of inequity society is willing to accept as a result of those choices. Well, thank you for joining me on this exploration of the relationship between our societal values and health. I keep learning things, and I hope you do too. Once again, I want to thank Rob Moody, Professor of Public Health in the School of Population and Global Health at Australia's University of Melbourne, for leading the commercial determinants effort and for sharing his time and expertise during this conversation. If you have comments you'd like to share or a guest you'd like to hear from, contact us by email at feedback at respectinghealth.com. And you can also leave comments on the website, respectinghealth.com. As always, a big thanks to Adam Bazer for your critical ear and helpful insights. I'm Rod Pahovsky. Join me again for the next episode of Respecting Health. And remember, when we respect ourselves and we respect each other and we respect the planet, the health of everyone and everything improves.